Good morning, everyone. It's time for our morning service to begin. It's good to see everybody here, especially if you're visiting with us. We'd like to invite you back again next Sunday at 1030 for our morning worship. A lot of things to go over this morning. On our prayer list update, Debbie Townsend, this is Chris's mother, continues to recover from her recent surgery. Her address is on the bulletin, is in the bulletin, bulletin board. Carol Galloway's procedure went well this past week. Continue to keep her and Clinton in your prayers. Friday has asked for prayers for her sister who has been diagnosed with leukemia and lymphoma. She lives in Mississippi. So keep her in your prayers. Also keep Dean Cooper in your prayers. Denise and Destiny have both recovered from COVID and now are back to work. Add Dan Spears and also Trey Davis to your prayers. They have tested positive for COVID. Keep them in your prayers. Remember those that have cancer that are recovering, they're having good reports. Hank and Kristen and Rusty and all of our others that are, keep them in your prayers also. If you haven't picked up our bulletin sheet, please do so as you leave this morning for more information and keeping up with everything. Rick Keister has written a book on the classes that have been going on for the last couple of years. Well, probably three because we haven't been here in a year on Wednesday evening other than the uh, class that we can get online we're thankful for that and if you want to pick up a copy of that I think they're 10 bucks so if you 10 of you do it I get a free one not really not really I'm just teasing Rick told me not to say that <laughs> but anyway they'll they'll be here where you can get one of those for 10 bucks and it's it's some good work After the closing prayer, if you would sit back down, we have some business that we have to take care of. Casey is, uh, we call him our attorney for here at, the bill, here at the congregation, but anyway, he has some things to go over, and he says it'll take one minute, so if somebody wants to time that. But anyway, it won't, it'll take a couple, three minutes, and, and we'll be finished, but take we have to uh, take care of some business to, for the state and insurance companies and other things that they don't understand about some things, how, we, how things are done. Also, one year ago today, we discontinued services for a time. One week from this coming Wednesday, the 24th, we feel very confident that we can start back with Wednesday evening devotionals. We're not going to start back on Sunday evening yet, but Wednesday evening devotionals, we're going to hold off on classes for a little while yet, 
but with what is being said on the news, speaking with Friday and, and, and the information that she has and has given to us over the process of the last year. We really appreciate it. It's helped us with some of the decisions that, that we've had to make and to be uh, careful and hopefully not have a pandemic here in our congregation. We've had several with COVID and so far we've gotten through that. So one week from be the 24th, 7 p.m., we'll have a devotional on Wednesday evening for the first one in over a year. So, anything else, Gary? Good. Make sure I got everything in. I'd like to read from James chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 10, if you'd like to follow along. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Would you bow with me, please? <clears throat> Father, we are thankful for this beautiful day of life for your son who came and died for us. We're thankful that we're coming to a time that looks better in this pandemic. That we can stay strong. Let our light shine in this community. We're thankful for you blessing our, our congregation and keeping us together. We ask that you bless us as we reopen Sunday evening and Wednesday evening and especially on the 24th as we meet in the middle of the week again. Bless us, Father. Bless each and every one of our members here at Rome. We're thankful for each one and pray you bless us as we try to carry on your work in our community. We pray for our sick of our congregation that you watch over each and every one of us and those that have been mentioned in our opening this morning. We pray, Father, that the things we do will be in accordance with your will and pleasing unto you. Be with our sick and our shut-ins. Forgive us. In thy son's name we pray. And amen. Would you stand, please, for the first song? First hymn this morning, number 220, He Lives. 220. <clears throat> I serve the risen Savior, he's in the world today. I know that he is, he's forever in the same. I seek his hand of mercy, I hear his voice of fear. And I'll find he's always
Next hymn, number 222, 222, He Will Pilot Me. <clears throat> and after this hymn, Brother Jeff Floyd will have our scripture in prayer. Oh, my God. 
Let us pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, Lord, and we thank you for all the blessings you give us. We thank you, Lord, that we can come and gather and to worship you and be with other Christians. We pray, Lord, you'll, you'll continue to be with us, Lord, and help us as, as, we, um, as we do see that things are going to improve, and we're thankful for that. Lord, we pray that you'll continue to be with our elders and the decisions that they've had to make, and especially during these times, we can pray that you'll continue to be with those and bless, bless them. Lord, we pray that you'll also continue to be with Chris and Kelly and David and Mandy and, Lord, the work they do here at the church. We pray that you'll be with the sick. We pray that you'll continue to be with those who, who are dealing with problems and you'll help them continue to improve. And thank you, Lord, for, for that blessing. We just thank you for all the blessings that you give us. And, Lord, that we are, we are so fortunate. We pray, Lord, that you will be with this country. We pray that your will, Lord, always rem let us remember that we can come to you for, for our, our troubles and issues. We thank you, Lord, especially for your son who died on the cross. In Christ's name we pray, and amen. This morning's scripture reading comes from John 14, verses 8 and 9. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you show, say, show us the Father? Our next hymn this morning, number 859, This morning we gather for the table to remember uh, Jesus, and as we uh, oftentimes do, we have certain milestones or anniversaries, and this being the one-year anniversary of COVID, I'm, I'm looking forward to looking out and seeing everybody without their masks on, So, um, but hopefully we will get to that one day. But the other thing is, I've, as I was thinking about, you know, we think about our memories and what we remember, and one of the other anniversaries that we are coming up on here at the congregation here in Rome is the 20th, uh, this will be the 20th year that we've been in this building. And it's um, something I remember because the last service we had in the old auditorium was the last service that my grandfather attended. And I remember 
you know, our first service here was in the first, first, first Sunday in April. I don't remember if it was April 1st or 2nd um, in 2001. So that's just a, a date that I remember. And I'm sure we all have memories that we all remember. Um, sometimes when the events happen, they may not be um, good memories, if you will, or it may not be a good event. But as time passes, that memory tends to sometimes change and become a pleasant memory or something that we are thankful for. And that's why we are here today to remember Jesus and his sacrifice, something that was brutal, terrible, but yet now we see it as something glorious and something that essentially allows us to live eternally if we accept and believe and obey. So as we remember this morning, I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. As Paul is telling the Corinthians of a memory that they don't remember, kind of like us, we, don't, we weren't there, but Paul is passing along this memory and what it means and, what we, and how we should conduct this memorial. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your strength. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice that we may have access to you. And we pray that you will bless this bread as we now remember him and remember his sacrifice, Lord. And it's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Let us pray for the fruit of the vine. Dear Lord, we thank you so much again for the opportunity to come here and be together, to worship you, to commune together. We thank you for the blood that Jesus shed that washes our sins away. We pray that you'll bless this cup as we partake of it now. And it's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Also, as, as we remember, I kind of, I remember one of the things, uh, where's Buzzy at? Where you at, Buzzy? There you are. One of the things that Buzzy and I used to always worry about before the pandemic started was making sure we had enough people to wait on the table. <laughs> Anybody who's ever tried to uh, round up uh, the eight, eight gentlemen to make sure we can wait on the table to pass out the emblems knows what a... Uh, fun time that is, but um, the uh, <laughs> and you also know as the young guys, where the, where's where are the Trevathan boys at? There they are. Yeah, I always pick on them to make sure they they go wait on that. So they haven't had to do that the past year. And Steeler, I see a lot of us. All of us have been there. Jackson and the Stevens boys have had to do our share. But as you know, we we don't do that at this time, and we are still uh, conducting our service and conducting everything. Um, as, as we need to, but also at this time uh, is when we offer the offering. And, and uh, as you know, there's the, uh, the yellow boxes in the back, and we will have those open. So at this time, we'd like to go ahead and bless the offering. And uh, if you would please pray with me and giving thanks for all that God has given to us. 
Dear Lord, thank you so much for everything that you have blessed us with. Even in times of trouble or times of need, you always give us what we really need. And we thank you for our shelter, our homes, our the food, all the material blessings you give to us in abundance, Lord. We thank you for, for this. We pray that you will be with this offering that is given today. We pray that you will bless the funds that are given, that they will be used in a way that are pleasing unto you and done so with your wisdom and with your guidance and with your strength to do as needs to be done. We pray that you will bless it. We pray that you'll go with us now as we continue in our worship. And may we continue to worship you in truth and in spirit. And it's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's all please stand again. We'll sing hymn number 219. 219, He's My King. All day. Oh, Jesus, I'm singing. He's my soul. him this morning, number 208, 208. He is able to deliver Good morning. And it's getting good to see this auditorium crowded again. That's a very good thing to see again. We're grateful for the vaccinations so many of you have received and for the news that we get to start back uh, Wednesday services. That is exciting, isn't it? Returning to Mark chapter 6, we're going to finish up this, uh, this chapter today. Mark chapter 6, we're going to spend our time this morning. These two events, the one we talked about last week with the feeding of the 5,000 and the, uh, the event that we're talking about today, Jesus walking on the water, are linked together. Uh, these two events happened, chronologically speaking, back to back. This is a, a, a sequence. This is one story. Um, these are not separated stories, although Mark is fond of doing that on occasion to prove his point. Remember, Mark is more of a preacher, not so much a historian. And so Mark is concerned with you getting his point, the spiritual principle that he's trying to get across to you. So Mark is okay taking an event from the end of Jesus' life and placing it right next to the, an event at the beginning of Jesus' life, as long as you get the principle he's trying to teach 
from these, combining these two stories. The story that we're dealing with today is not like that. These two events happened chronologically back to back. But Mark also wants you to see these two events as linked together. Read your text this morning, Mark chapter 6, verse 45. The very first words you see in that passage, in that verse, in verse 45, is one of Mark's favorite words, immediately. You see it dozens of times in Mark's gospel, immediately. Now, that is Mark's way of tying the feeding of the 5,000. He's just dismissed the crowd. And then immediately, Jesus does this next thing that he's about to do. So Mark is tying these two events together. Now, skip down a couple of verses and look at the last verse in this little, this little section in verse 52. Mark wants to make sure that we see the connection. Because there's an important spiritual principle that he's trying to get across to us here. So don't miss the connection. In verse 52, he says, they didn't understand about Jesus walking on the water because they didn't understand the loaves. So there's a connection here between these two passages. And what we're after today is what's the spiritual principle Mark wants us to go after. So let's dive into the text a little bit. We don't normally read uh, the whole section. Normally we're dealing with huge uh, passages of scripture showing you how Mark puts all these things together. But today's passage is relatively small. So let's, let's kind of walk through a couple of these verses and, and tell this incredible story. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Now, there's a couple of things you need to understand there. Grab a pencil and underline in your text, made. This, immediately, he made. If you write in your text, underline need, because that word is literally compelled. Jesus forced. He's not asking. He's demanding that his disciples get into the boat and go across to the other side. Why in the world would he do that? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Why is he insisting? Why were they not ready to go? Remember last week, and you see an allusion to it again here in verse 45 there at the end when Jesus dismissed the crowd. Did he have to force the crowd to leave? He did, right? And in fact, John's going to tell us that Jesus slips out away from the crowd. Why, why is he doing that? Doesn't Jesus not want to talk to the people? Does he not want to heal them? Well, that's the thing. They're not there to listen. And they're not there to be healed. They're there to force him to become the king. There's this messianic fervor, this nationalism that has taken over Galilee over the last hundred years by the time Jesus comes along and feeds the 5,000. And this nationalism, this messianic fervor is all about kicking the Romans out of Jerusalem. These usurpers do not belong in power in Jerusalem. It is a burr. Uh, the understatement of the century, a burr under the saddle of the, of the Israelites for the Romans to be in charge. They just can't stand it. And now finally, the Messiah has come. This man is obviously uh, from God. He's doing things and saying things that are incredible, like no one has ever seen in over 500 years. And so they think he is the Messiah. Now, when they say Messiah, they don't mean what you mean when you say Messiah. These guys mean uh, a conquering king, a warrior, who's riding, in, who's riding in on a white horse, and he's going to save Jerusalem, meaning not save like you and I think of save, but meaning that he's going to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem, and he's going to restore the Davidic kingdom back to Israel and, and all of the glory that Israel had as a kingdom under the reigns of David and Solomon. That's going to come back. That's what they understood when they said Messiah. Well, obviously, looking back on it, we see something very much different. We see it more through Jesus' eyes rather than theirs. But today I need you to see it through their eyes for a little while so that you can grab a hold of what Mark's trying to say to us here. So he has to force the disciples to leave. Why? Because they're more on the bandwagon with the crowd than they are with Jesus. They align themselves, their nationalism, their, their, their messianic fervor is more in line with the crowds than it is with Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. That's the only reason I can think of that he would be forced to make them leave. He compels them to leave. We see time and time again in Mark, and it's a 
a staple in Mark that the disciples just don't get it. They don't see. And very much like the Pharisees and the scribes who are constantly pushing back against Jesus. Well, if you're really, if you're really from God, do this. And if you're, if you're really uh, from God, well, then you can't say that you forgive sins and you heal this person and show me this. And that's the kind of attitude that the Pharisees are always exhibiting because they just don't, Jesus would phrase it like this, have eyes to see. Mark tells us that the disciples don't really have eyes to see either. They're just in the Pharisees' boat as the Pharisees are. They're just in the dark about what Jesus came to do as the Pharisees are. And so here, it looks to me, reading from what Mark is telling us, that these disciples are kind of whipping the crowd up into a frenzy a little bit more than the crowd is already wanting to be in. It looks to me like the disciples are rallying the crowd, or at least joining in with the crowd in trying to encourage Jesus to become this Messiah that they want him to become. And so he forces them out into the boat and makes them leave. Now, to their credit, they actually leave. I don't think he would have manhandled Peter. I think he probably had to speak sternly to the group, though. Leave. Get in the boat now and go. It's curious to me what their mindset would have been after those words. So he forces the disciples into the boat. Get to the other side. I'll meet you over there when it's time. Misses the crowd. And he goes up onto a mountain to pray. Now, if you look back in, in your text, in about verse 46, Jesus goes up onto this mountain to pray. He says, after he had taken leave, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. What do you think Jesus was about? You see a mountain up on the, uh, uh, on the other side, of the, the far side of this picture here. Maybe that's what the disciples were looking at as, as night fell it's very late when Jesus comes walking to them on the water. Uh, it's between 4 and 6 a.m. in the morning, so it's, it's dark, or at least dusky. Maybe that's what they're looking at, remembering that Jesus is probably on the map. He's probably praying. I don't, I don't think he let them in on what he's doing there, but that's probably what they think he's doing, because he was fond of praying on mountains. And so as they look across the water, if they have time during the midst of this crazy storm that's about to pop up again, See the mountain and think, I wonder what he's doing. What do you think? The Bible doesn't tell us, right? It just says that he's praying. What do you think? If you had to insert some words in Jesus' mouth there, what are his thoughts as he's standing on the mountain praying? Stop and think about that because that's not just a conjecture question, right? It's not just subjective, right? Because we put ourselves in his shoes and we try to see the world through his eyes in this, in this text. What's just happened? 5,000 people didn't get it. They didn't understand why I come. And in fact, they were so off base, they could not be farther from the truth. Jesus didn't come to bring a sword, did he? He didn't come to... To, to unite political powers. He didn't care about that stuff. He, his mission was so much larger. 5,000 people didn't get it. In fact, a whole nation of people didn't get it. In fact, 12 men who had been following him since he first started preaching, his best friends, the men who should have understood more than anyone else, didn't get it. They didn't understand. They didn't see his mission for what it was. And so what do you think he's praying for? I think at least part of what he could have been praying for that night was a prayer that said, open their eyes, help them to see. Because if they keep on with this messianic fervor, this nationalism that, that, that the 5,000 have already exhibited, if they keep that up, they're not going to be able to see why he really came. They're going to be lost. They're not going to be able to get in on the kingdom, which is why he came in the first place. And so I think he's probably saying something very much like, please open their eyes. I don't know what else to do. You know, he's healed people. He's raised the dead. He's taught in a way that no one teaches. 
even the people who don't see him clearly are astonished, flabbergasted, how we might say it, at his teaching. They don't know where he got it from. They're astounded. But they still don't see. And so I think his prayer probably sounded something a little bit like that. Help them to see, open up their eyes. You ever been in this situation? Sometimes we pray things like that, don't we? I think Jesus is praying something very much like that on this occasion, although Scripture obviously is silent on this matter. I think that seems to be a reasonable conclusion. Now, verse 47, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. That word painfully is used by Mark in several other places. In fact, it means physical torment. They are rowing so hard, it's hurting them physically. You ever been in that kind of uh, physical strain? These guys are being tormented. In fact, it's the word that Mark uses for demon possession. We know they're not possessed by demons, but they are in that kind of physical torment. They're rowing very hard. Well... Let's see what Jesus does. For the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, remember, if you mark in Scripture, that's about 4 to 6 a.m. I want to underline that and make a note there. He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Now, read one more verse with me. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and, and cried out. We'll get to what they said in a second, but does anything sound weird to you from that last verse? Sometimes we get so familiar with these passages, and and this is one of those, as well as the last one we talked about with the feeding of the 5,000. We become so accustomed to these passages that we just kind of read through them when we don't think very much about them, do we? Like, you could probably quote this passage, certainly you could tell me the story, right? But you might even be able to quote this passage, at least sections of it, right? And so you may not have noticed what just happened. And so that's why we read Scripture slowly and thoughtfully. Go back and look at it again. Look, maybe you want to underline what he says here in, uh, in verse 48. He meant to pass by them. What's he doing there? What's Mark trying to get across to us there? He meant to pass by them. Is it that Jesus doesn't care about his disciples? Is it that he, he's a little frustrated with them? Maybe so he's a little angry with them? That's not the case, right? He sees them tormented in pain, physically, trying to row against these winds that are, uh, it's a, they're fighting a losing battle. And so Jesus goes out to them, but then he made as if to pass by them. He sees them hurting, takes steps, literally, to fix their problem, but then makes as if to pass by them. See, well, we need to read it slowly and thoughtfully. We just pass by that very quickly, but we miss what Mark's really trying to tell us here, the spiritual principle. A lot of times, when you read across something, that you're just kind of like, what? I don't understand what's, what's going on here. Why did he put that little tidbit in there for me? It's a string that you need to pull on. I don't know if you've ever read this book on the screen behind me, No Roses for Harry. It's a, it's a kid's book. I, we, Kelly and I have read it to our kids a lot. In fact, I think it was one of our books when we were little, so it's kind of falling apart. But... <clears throat> The story goes that the, the dog gets uh, this sweater from, from his grandmother. <laughs> um, and there's a little string on it. And he starts trying to pull on it. And eventually, I don't want to ruin the ending for you. Suspense. But he eventually pulls the, uh, the sweater apart by pulling on this little string. You guys ever had a button? I have these a lot. They're like a little string on your, on your button. What happens if you pull it? You lose your button, don't you? It's not normally a good thing to pull strings on your clothes. I want you to start pulling strings in Scripture, though. When you find something that you think, oh, that's a little weird, start pulling on it. Guess what will happen? It will unravel. That's when you really get to the good stuff. That's when you really get to the meat. Because that's when you start learning things you never thought of before and you start making connections that you've never thought of before. So let's start trying to pull out what's going on here. Because Mark is giving us a clue. This is a breadcrumb. This is a string that ought to get our attention. We ought to start pulling it. So why does Jesus... Act as if he's about to pass by them. Well, let's note that it is a, that it is a breadcrumb. Let's read the rest of the story 
at least a little bit more of it, and we're going to get a, we're going to get another breadcrumb. He's not going to leave us out in the dark here. Verse fifty. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, "Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid." Now, again, I'm a big fan of writing in your Bibles. <laughs> uh, if you don't want to write in your Bible, buy one of those um, those little scripture journal things. Uh, they come in ESV. Um, English Standard Version um, copies now. They've also got a New King James copy. I think they've got a Christian Standard Bible copy if you like that translation. But get some of those. Those things are amazing. They're just individual um, books of the Bible with note sections on them. I write, mark those things up. But if you mark in Scripture, underline it as I, because that's not what he says. He says, in Greek, he says, ego eimi. Ego eimi. That's not the only time you see that in Scripture. John is a big fan of this, of this phrase. He's literally saying, I am. And in fact, John has seven I am statements on Jesus' lips. I'm the door, I'm the truth, I'm the way, the life, and the truth. Um, I'm the good shepherd. There's seven of them. I wrote about this a little bit in the bulletin article this morning. This, morning. Um, this is a favorite of John. This is a favorite phrase of John's. And Mark's going to kind of co-opt it here for the same purpose. When in John, Jesus says, Ego me, I am the life. What's he saying? I'm God. I am Yahweh. The God who made the universe. The God who formed you. Who breathed life into you. I am him. Now, even in John... That's not the first time you see this word, is it? In fact, the where you may be more familiar with it is all the way back in the Old Testament, back in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, you may want to cross-reference this passage here in Mark back to Exodus chapter 3, so you can go back and study this back on your own later. But Exodus chapter 3, Moses is walking around the Sinai desert, and he sees a bush on fire. Do you remember the story? He walks over to the bush because it's an odd sight. What's going on? He gets over to the bush, and the bush talks to him, and it knows his name. And it tells him to take his shoes off because where he's standing is holy ground. It introduces itself as Yahweh, the God of his fathers, and he has a mission for Moses. Go back and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, okay, God, but uh, what if, uh, what if? It's kind of Moses' favorite thing in the early part of his life. What if this happens? And one of his what if things is, what if they ask me what your name is? Who, who do I tell them has sent me? Yahweh says, you tell them I am has sent you. You tell them ego a me has sent you. Now that word literally means to be. To be. Literally, God is saying, I am, I always have been, I always will be active. I am. This is an incredibly big word with a lot of theological ramifications coming out of this word. But what you need to know today is, it is a term for divinity. In fact, it is his name. When the, uh, the Jews started writing out Yahweh. They wrote to be. To be. Y-H-W-H is his name. And we pronounce it today Yahweh, Yahweh, something like that. We don't exactly know what it would have sounded like because we don't have the consonants because the Hebrews didn't write in consonants. And so, or in vowels. And so they left the vowels out. And all we were left with is the consonants. And so we don't really know how to pronounce it, but we know what it means. To be. And so when Jesus, back in Mark chapter 6, comes walking to the water and they think it's a ghost and they're terrified, the storm's coming, it's just an awful scene, and Jesus says, Hey, have courage. Ego, a me. I am. Lest you think we're jumping to conclusions about how deep this word is and what the ramifications of it are, that it is a claim to divinity, when the Jews heard it, on Jesus' lips in John, do you remember what they did? They picked up stones and were going to kill them because they thought it was blasphemy. And indeed it would have been for literally anyone other than him because he is 
God. It's another breadcrumb, right? Mark is throwing us uh, uh, this stream that he wants us to pull on. And so what is, we're not there yet, right? We're not there yet. So keep pulling on this string. These are just breadcrumbs we're following to try to get back to what Mark's trying to teach us through this miracle. And so when he says, Jesus made it as if to pass them by, what's he trying to say here? He's trying to give them a theophany. There's a religious word for you. A theophany. Probably don't know what that means, do you? It's a meeting with God. It's a time when God descends and man meets with him. Now, every time this happens, the man's life is changed forever. He's never the same. You remember Moses we just talked about? He had a theophany at the burning bush. He went from, how how would we characterize Moses at this point in his life? An outcast shepherd who is timid and and, uh, scared and not a leader and just wants to be... Uh, in the background for the rest of his life, kind of. He's been in the foreground for most of the, the first 40 years of his life as Pharaoh's adopted son. He doesn't want that anymore. He just wants to be in the background now. And God calls him all of a sudden into the spotlight. And uh, you kind of see this give and take in Exodus 3 and chapter 4 uh, with Moses says, yeah, but what if this happens? But after this theophany, Moses' life changes. That's what theophanies do for us, don't they? Elijah is going to have his own theophany. It's a fun word to say if you want to say it about your theophany. When Elijah has his own theophany in 1 Kings 18 and 19, do you remember what God does? He puts him in the, in the cleft of the rock. I think I've got a picture for you here. This is maybe something like what this could have looked like with Elijah. But there's a little hollow spot in the rock, and God puts his hand on the hollow spot in the rock, and he passes by, and he removes his hand, and Elijah is able to see where his glory went by. That changed Elijah's life. Elijah went from someone who was depressed clinically, like counselors with PhDs have gone back and looked at this story. He is clinically depressed to a man who has a mission, who has uh, worth, and is going to get the job done. It changed his life. That's what theophanies do, right? If there were ever a people in need of a theophany, in in need of a change of life, it was the disciples, right? The apostles just don't see Jesus very clearly. And he needs them to see him clearly. If the feeding of the 5,000 didn't do it, what could possibly do it? Andrew brought... What, three loaves and two little fish? Five loaves and two fish? <laughs> Five loaves and two fish to, to Jesus. And Jesus starts breaking them. And he starts handing them out to the disciples. At what point, like what number of disciples got the, got the bread? He thought, where is he getting this stuff? Like he's got to be looking behind Jesus. Like where's this bread coming from? And there were only two little fish. Like why? I have five in my hand. Where did the fish come from? We just fed 5,000 people with this little kid's lunch. What's going on? They didn't get it. They didn't see. Mark tells us they didn't see because their hearts were hardened. They needed a theophany. They needed to see God clearly. We need that today, don't we? I think Mark wants us to encounter God. That's what the disciples are doing here. And Mark gives us this breadcrumb. This He made as if to pass them by. Because that's what God does. In a theophany, he passes by. Remember, we said that God put his hand on the cleft of the rock where, where Elijah's inside the cleft. And he puts his hand over there. And what does God do? He makes his presence, what? Pass by, doesn't he? He says that a couple more times throughout Scripture as people have experiences, this, these, these theophanies where God meets people. He passes by. And so, to a person who is steeped in the Old Testament, to a person who is listening, to a Roman, that's who Mark's writing to, who has no concept of the Old Testament, who had not read the Old Testament yet, who wasn't even interested in the Old Testament, was just interested in Jesus. 
Mark starts leaving these breadcrumbs for interested people to start pulling on. And if you pull on them, guess what happens? It starts unraveling, doesn't it? And the text just starts opening up in front of you. And you start thinking, whoa, I'm seeing this text on a completely different level than I've ever seen it before. Why? Because you started pulling on the text. You started following the breadcrumbs. You have to put in the hard work to get to where he wants you to be. That's why Mark, up until like the last several chapters, has been trying to drill inside of us. Remember the parable of the soils? He gives three parables there, right? He explains the very first one, the parable of the sower. He explains it. He doesn't explain the last two parables of the soil, does he? Why? Because he wants you to start pulling at them, unraveling them. So what will happen? So you will experience God. So you'll have your own theophany. He doesn't come in burning bushes anymore, does he? He doesn't come walking on the water anymore, does he? Paul would argue in 1 Corinthians 13 that we have something better now. We can have a theophany with God every day if we're willing to put in the work and start unraveling the text. Start following the breadcrumbs that he's left for us. We can meet with God anytime we want. Isn't that... It's beautiful, right? It's powerful. I think that's what Mark's trying to tell us right here in Mark chapter 6 with the, with the walking on the water miracle. It's so much more than just the miracle. Although if you were to just take it at face value, should you listen to this guy who can feed however many people he wants to feed with a kid's lunch? Yeah, you want to listen to somebody that can do that. Would you want to listen to someone who can walk on water, yeah, you're going to want to pay attention to what they're saying, right? So just on face value, these two stories ought to make us sit back and listen. But you start diving a little deeper, and you get more and more meaning, don't you? You start seeing that Mark wants you to have your own personal theophany, your own personal meet with God. Whenever you want it. Isn't that incredible? Why does Mark want that so bad for us? Because that changes lives forever. Because once you meet him, once you see him walking on the water, once you see him multiplying loaves and fish, you're never the same. It changes you. You line up behind him, you submit to him without question. And you follow his mission for the rest of your life. That's what the disciples finally did. When they finally were able to see him. It took the resurrection. It literally took the resurrection for them to be able to see him for who he was. But when they finally grabbed a hold of it, they didn't let it go for anything. It changed who they were. Mark wants us to have a theophany. Not just for the experience, right? but so that it changes who we are. It changes our values. It changes our priorities. And it sets us on a mission for life. So this morning, what's your mission? Have you had a theophany? Have you met with God? Have you been baptized into His blood? Had all your sins washed away? Become a member of His church. A member of His family. If you've not made that decision this morning, why not make it right now? You're still carrying sins around on your back like a, a backpack full of rocks. He says you don't have to do that. You pick up his burden because it's light and easy. Right? Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. And you follow him, living on mission for the rest of your life because you've met him. And it changes you. Maybe you've already met him. Maybe you've already been baptized into his blood. And you the prayers for this congregation to be who God would have you to be. If you have any need this morning, why don't you come as we stand and sing. Just the grandest thing through the echoes grow. Just the grandest thing for a Lord of Just the grandest thing that the world can suck our God is into.
Number 216, 216, he leadeth me, and you're going to be later, okay. We'll close with this song, this part of it, and then uh, Brother Jim Wilgus will lead us in prayer. And then if you would, we'll just be seated for a few minutes, as Brother Jerry said there, for Brother Casey. We'll sing the first and the third verse, he leadeth, he leadeth me. Wow. 